Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in uh, and gotta watch the tape from Cleveland.com. There's a playoff game on Sunday, and the Browns are still on track to play in it. Doug Maurice, Scott Pasco, Ellis Williams, wild week, as you guys know. Kevin Stefanski will not be able to coach on the sideline for this Browns game on Sunday because of COVID 19. Joel Batonio also out. It is crazy to try to analyze a team in its biggest game in 18 years when there are all these moving parts, but we're going to do it. I mean, they're going to do it. I'm just going to sit here and scream and make dad jokes, but Scott and Ellis are going to do it. So thanks for joining us on got to watch the tape. We'll have another one for you end of the week. So let's get to it. We're we're not going to just like talk about Joel Batonio the whole time. We're going to try to analyze different parts of the game. So we're going to start with Scott Patsko. Ellis Williams will be along in the second half to talk about some of the play action with Baker Mayfield. Why aren't they bootlegging him more like they were in the past? But first, Scott Patsko going to dive in on the safety play and what might happen with that now that Ben Roethlisberger is ready to go against the Browns on Sunday. So Scott Patsko, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. So, yeah, before all the craziness happened uh, this week, I'm, you know, watching film on the Browns and uh, <clears throat> noticed that against the Steelers, the Browns used their fifth different starting duo at safety last week. And then after the Steelers' first drive, they switched to their sixth different duo at safety. So I wanted to get into that position and maybe uh, at the end we can kind of decide what might be the best uh, pairing, uh, assuming, you know, everybody's available for when they go up against the Steelers uh, in the playoff game. Uh, but let's start with what we had on <clears throat> on Sunday and, and talk a little about how uh, these safeties kind of compare to their peers across the league this season. Um, like I said, it's still unclear uh, if we're going to have Andrew Sandejo back on the field uh, this week. We'll probably find that out either once they get back on the field. Kevin Stefanski, I don't even know if we're going to hear from Kevin Stefanski <laughs> this week, but somebody's going to tell us who's available and who's coming back at some point. One of those you have to figure is going to be Ronnie Harrison, Andrew Sandejo, again, needs to be clear from the COVID list. What we had in week 17 was Harrison started at strong safety. Sheldrick Redwine started at free safety. And that's the first time we've seen that pairing this season, but it only lasted six snaps. Uh, Redwine played the first series, and then he only showed up on special teams the rest of the game. Uh, And that's something we should probably ask Joe Woods about later this week. Uh, Maybe Carl Joseph couldn't find his helmet. It was really unclear why. Redwine uh, was out there instead of Joseph, but that's that's what it was. And then it just switched. And there wasn't any noticeable mistakes by Redwine and that opening drive because the Steelers really tried to run the ball. Um, didn't really throw it down the field very much. I think that first drive, like I said, it only lasted six plays. So you're talking one first down in there. 
and then they switched. And then we got Harrison and Joseph the rest of the way, um, even though both have been traditionally considered strong safeties. And it wasn't that bad. It wasn't one of Harrison's best games, but he played, hadn't played since week 12. Harrison had five tackles. He had three misses, though. Two quarterback pressures. Uh, he gave up one catch on three targets for five yards. Uh, and he had a pass breakup. Mason Rudolph only had a passer rating of 42.4 against him. And Harrison's PFF grade was 66.5, which is above average, but a little below where he's been. He's pretty much consistently been in the 70s. That's what he is overall this season. Joseph had one of his better games. He graded at 60.6, which is good for Joseph. Uh, he had four tackles. He only had one miss, again, which is, which is good for Joseph. Gave up one catch on one target for seven yards. And Rudolph had a 95.8 pass array against him which again is, is lower than the norm for Joseph. Nothing spectacular, but when it comes to Brown safeties, that game, maybe we could argue that it was spectacular because overall this season, wow. uh, they safety. have lowered the bar. They have low. Oh, what a way to go through life. Lower the bar to such a degree yes. that that is spectacular. That is great advice. But, but the key, the key to happiness, lower your expectations. That's it right there. <laughs> That is Scott Patsko's guide to picking up women. <laughs> wow. I used that no, a lot with my friend yeah. uh, in the bars uh, when, when I was in college, definitely. That's what you tell yeah. women. I'm not implying the expectation. You are the lowered expectation, Scott. I want to make sure that's clear, that they right. lower it for you. Okay, go ahead. That's right. Uh, so overall this season, uh, of NFL safeties who have played at least 230 snaps this season, PFF grading, Harrison is 14th in defensive grade among safeties, 74.7. And we kind of knew that he had clearly was performing at the higher level than the other safeties on the Browns roster. Joseph is 82nd, 53.3. Redwine, who just makes the cutoff, he's got 276 snaps. He's 92nd. And Sendejo is 94th with a 42.9 grade. And I should point out, there are 99 safeties who will play at least 230 snaps. So again, three of your safeties are in the bottom 20. And Sendejo is, you know, clinging on, the edge of the other limb there at 94th in that same focus group. Sandejo is tied for seventh in missed tackles with 14th. Although he's just four off the lead and Joseph has eight. Joseph is eighth in passer rating against 135.1. Sandejo is 25th. Harrison is all the way down at 79th uh, in coverage grade. Harrison's 15th. Again, kind of backing up what we've seen uh, from him this season. Redwine and Joseph are in the 80s. Sandejo 95th. And again, that's out of 99 safeties and coverage grade, 39.3 PFF grade. Joseph is tied for first among safeties with seven touchdowns given up in coverage. Sandejo is tied for third with five. Harrison has given up just one, according to PFF. Uh, Harrison has five pass breakups, which are ranked 12th among safeties. So you can see the gap here between uh, Harrison and what else the Browns have. I guess the run, Harrison, <clears throat> not great. He's ranked 43rd. Unfortunately, PFF doesn't really differentiate between strong and free safety when it comes to, to that, which would probably help. Um, but Joseph is 53rd, Sadejo 76th, Redwine 95th. Uh, Redwine is the third word, has the third worst tackling efficiency among safeties, and that's a metric that measures the number of attempts per missed tackle. Uh, so that's probably one of the reasons why you don't see Redwine out there as much as the other guys. Sadejo is 14th in that metric. So you can see here that Harrison has been playing at a high level compared to the other NFL safeties since he began starting for the Browns. As for the others, the numbers kind of back up what we saw during the regular season, which is that 
it's probably a good thing that Harrison or that Joseph and Zanejo on one year contracts because it, it's likely that the Browns are going to want to move on after the season. It also feels like if anyone has been wanting Sheldrick Redwine to happen, it's not happening. Ellis, is that fair that, I mean, as they've had these veterans who are kind of like, well, that's probably not any kind of real answer there. He's the young guy. He's the draft pick. He's the guy and he's gotten chances here and there. And at times I think people have been kind of excited. Like here he comes. It feels like he's gotten enough of a shot this year um, to realize that's not it. Yeah. That seems to be where this is trending. I think Scott brought up a great point about what was up with this, the opening six snaps and then never seeing him again. The thing with Redwine is, there just doesn't seem to be any sort of physical trait that pops that puts you on the field. And you can tell that this defense is specifically built around talented athletes. And that sounds obvious. Everyone, you know, in theory, you'd want your defense to be freakishly athletic and intelligent to make plays and proper reads. Uh, but that's a lot harder to find that, especially later in the draft. So with a guy like Sheldrick Redwine, you're hoping his instincts, his attention to detail, his coaching, uh, the way he picks things up can put him onto the field. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And instead, with, you know, athletes like Jacob Phillips and Ronnie Harrison, they, you know, those are the type of guys that the Browns are going to put on the field when the other things aren't happening. So it Redwine's had his chances. It clearly isn't working. And that's just how this defense is going to play out. And as Scott's saying, with the one-year contracts at safety, it doesn't seem like Redwine is really a part of the safety room going forward either. And it does feel like Harrison was maybe working his way back a little bit last week. And he's been so good. He's obviously been the best guy that Scott, I would imagine we think maybe we get a, you know, more toward the best version of Ronnie Harrison this week and last week was kind of a feel it out kind of game. Yeah, I would guess that, yeah, he was definitely below average. And I would, I guess the first thing you have to do is again, is chalk that up to not playing since week 12. So he definitely was below average. And as I'll get to here a little later, uh, Joseph was like, well, like I said already, Joseph was above average and it got them the win, but it didn't uh, come out looking good stat wise uh, as far as Mason Rudolph's play went. So. And, and it's one of the things, the reason that all this matters, and obviously is because last week was Mason Rudolph, and now it's going to be Ben Roethlisberger, and it's time. And I mean, this this is a guy who is going to test this secondary and a blown coverage or a missed tackle or, you know, a, just a bad play at an inopportune moment might be the difference between the Browns advancing in the playoffs and not. So we've been watching this safety play all year, and, and part of it is like, listen, there's only so much you can expect out of this, but like, man, not that it was going to be a shock when you get to the playoffs. Hey, you, you face a quarterback who's going to test you in the secondary. That's all those guys make the playoffs. But that's where we are now. But I will say that that Carl Joseph, Carl Joseph came up and made a tackle, right, to stop a guy a yard short of a first down at a critical moment. And it was like, that's why he's here. There it is. Andrew Barry is like, that's why I signed him. There it is. There's a Carl Joseph play. But that. That idea, there's this, there's a, a version of this, Scott, which is what you're going to get to. There's a version of this where Harrison plays his best and the other guys just like are okay. There's a version of this that could work, I think, right? So what are those best versions? When we think especially about, I think we've seen what Ronnie Harrison can do, but Carl Joseph and Andrews and Deho, they were both brought here in similar ways. What, if, if we're hoping to see the best of them on Sunday, what is that? Yeah, and I, and I should point out, Sadeo's had some of those plays, too, where he just flies up 
from deep and it makes a tackle for a loss. And you're like, all right, well, that's, I guess that's what he can do. But again, consistency is the issue. I don't want to spend a lot of time on going over backgrounds of guys who could be playing their final game on Sunday for the Browns. But I think it's worth remembering why the Browns went after Sandejo and Joseph in the first place. And we'll start with Joseph, um, who again was signed as a free agent, uh, former first round pick of the Raiders, taking one pick ahead of Corey Coleman, by the way, six picks after Jack Conklin for, uh, for reference here, Joseph's biggest strengths came in the run game as a tackler. And, you know, the Browns had to remake their entire safety depth chart pretty much this off season. Uh, Demarius Randall gone, Morgan Burnett gone. He, I don't even know if he's technically retired or what, but he was into his thirties and was coming off a major injury. So I, I don't know if he was even capable of coming back at that point. So they needed to make moves. Um, Joseph, again, his, his biggest, I guess, attractiveness was as a tackler. He graded at 77.1 in run defense in each of his last three seasons. Again, that's pretty good. His tackling grades have been more varied, you know, as high as he was almost at 90 as a rookie, but then he's been as low as 50. So it's really been up and down, but with the Browns this year, he's about where he was the last two seasons with the Raiders. And he started 41 or 49 games for the Raiders. So the Browns were getting a guy who was a veteran who had started, even though he hadn't played like a first round pick, he brought experience to the position. And I think that was kind of important. Uh, for, for the back of the defense. Then they signed Sandejo, also in free, free agency. He spent nine years in Minnesota, and I just have this vision of, of Ellis growing up and, you know, just living vicariously through Andrew, uh, Andrew Sandejo, watching him on the field and thinking, he's making all my dreams come true as a Vikings fan growing up. Did you have a jersey, uh, Ellis? Did you have a jersey? Sandejo jersey for Christmas for Ellis? No, quickly, the background on Sandejo in Minnesota is pretty interesting. Uh, a special teams guy made a lot of plays um, and just popped on tape in that way. And then once he earned that starting role, he definitely became the weak link in what was one of the, you know, perennial top defenses in the league year in and year out. And quite frankly, the way Browns fans bash on him in this one season is what many Vikings fans did for those, you know, three or four years he was starting in Minnesota because he had an all pro safety next to him. So it was easy to, you know, bang on Sandejo and he deserved it usually. And that, that type of stuff he does is missling down. Um, he's hurt himself doing it before, like the concussion he has now, and he's hurt his teammates before doing it. So he's been this same player through and through once he was no longer a special teams guy. I yeah. watch all those house renovation shows on HGTV, and it feels like their strategy is always find the worst house in the best neighborhood and fix it up. And that feels like what Andrew Barry was doing here. It's like, hey, I like what they're doing in Minnesota with that defense. Let's get the worst guy from that defense for cheap and then fix him up. And it was like, dude, the floor in the bathroom fell into the basement. There's asbestos mm-hmm. everywhere. This renovation is going to cost three times what we thought. And it's like, well, we took a shot. But I'm glad Ellis is, is here to, to point out his, uh, his, his history of watching Sunday. If you go by PFF grade, uh, at least in coverage, he did improve as his year went on. He started only five out of his nine years uh, in Minnesota, but his, uh, his coverage grades jumped. They were 76, 70, and 78.3 before he joined the Browns. So I'm sure that was something that they noticed. Uh, he gave up three touchdowns in coverage over that span. He had five picks. He broke up nine passes. So, I mean, if you look at it as, as his last you know, few seasons in Minnesota, that doesn't look so bad. Maybe it looks a little worse if you're watching it every week like Ellis was. But you had a guy coming in, again, to battle for free safety who seemed to be trending in the right direction, or at least maybe he had the possibility of doing that. You pair him with Carl Joseph. But that isn't all the Browns did, obviously. 
planned on making other moves. We should point out here, and Ellis has brought this up before, there's more to Sandejo being on the field than just stats. You're making coverage decisions out there and making sure people are in the right spots, and the coach needs to be confident that there's a player back there doing those things. And I'm not saying Redwine can't do those things. You saw him moving Harrison around this past week uh, a few times. But I think Joe, only Joe Woods knows who's really doing that the right way and what defense they're supposed to be in and where people are supposed to be and what they're supposed to be looking for pre-snap and things like that. So, again, you have a guy who's been in the league for quite a while and Sandejo back there handling that as opposed to somebody who's uh, been in the league for, for a little over a year in, in red wide. So we can talk about stats and trends and all that, but I think that plays into it as well. But like I said, despite signing those two safeties, they also drafted Grant Delpit, who excelled in coverage at LSU and took most of his snaps at free safety. Um, Joe Woods talked about the opportunity to use him, though, in the box and even in slot coverage. He actually said he's the ideal type of athlete in the secondary. Obviously, we'll have to wait till next year to see how that looks for the Browns. But we should also note that Delpit, if he hadn't gotten hurt in training camp, I guess there's two schools of thought here. The one is that if Delpit hadn't gotten hurt in training camp, Harrison might not be here right now. But then again, maybe he would have because back in training camp, remember Carl Joseph was still kind of easing back into things after foot surgery and he wasn't participating in every practice. He was kind of taking every other one off and wasn't always out there in pads. So maybe there's a chance that we could have seen Delpit and Harrison together this season. Maybe the Browns swing a deal and send the, the fifth rounder to the Jaguars and get Harrison. And, and we see that pairing this season. You would have, Somebody in Harrison who uh, has tackled well against Delpit with Delpit, who's someone who did not tackle well at all at LSU. And that was kind of really the only uh, black mark against him coming out. So in that respect, maybe you're in a similar situation you are now with uh, Harrison and Sandejo, but at least coverage wise, you'd be in a much better place. I think lastly, though, I think we need to mention Harrison again, fifth round pick to the Jaguars to get him. Unlike Joseph and Sandejo, he has played better since joining the Browns grade wise. He's been better across the board. His overall defensive grade of, uh, was 61.1 and 60.9 his last two seasons with the Jaguars, where he started 22 of 28 games. His passer rating against has dropped from 90.5 last year to 81.9 this year. And he's already got, he's got five pass breakups, which are a single high. So that's what the Browns got to replace what they had last year. You got two guys who are playing below the level the Browns had seen from them previously. And then you got Harrison who's playing at a level above where he was last year. How Delpit fits into that. We'll never know. Uh, we'll have to wait till next year, but hey, the Browns are 11 and five with this, with this mess at safety. Yeah. And we knew it, not a surprise and, and they'll get better at it, but we knew this was likely coming in. Go ahead, Ellis. Yeah. Two quick things. Um, first, I, I, I want Brown's listeners to remember that um, Sandejo and Joe Woods spent three years together in Minnesota. Uh, I believe it would have been like the 20, like 11 through 13 or 14 window, something like that. And Kevin Stefanski was also there too. So to the point of having a guy you can trust back there, it doesn't get much closer than that. You know, he, Joe Woods coached defensive backs and Kevin Stefanski was working with the offense. So you have Joe Woods watching what Sandejo was doing and then Kevin Stefanski scheming up ways whether it was in the quarterback room or the running back coach, scheming up ways to beat Sandejo in these training camps and practice. So they all are all so familiar with each other, which I think explains exactly why he's playing as much as he has. Not to turn this into an Andrew Sandejo deep dive in podcast. Secondly, I just want to ask you guys, or if we can like try to go back to training camp, what did we project as the Browns starting safeties? Was it, it was going to be Grant Delpit and, and, and Carl Joseph. I mean, because I never, Joseph was hurt during camp, if I can remember right, or, 
Scott, can you go back there at all? What, yeah, what was the projected I, duo? You know, I think at first we were wondering if they would have three safeties out there a lot. Um, yeah. Because that was kind of floated out there, uh, maybe insinuated by Joe Woods a little bit. But I think Delpit, obviously, and, and I would assume Joseph. But again, it, I mean, Delpit went down. There was Training camp wasn't long to begin with, and Delpit went down pretty early. So after that, it was obviously going to be Sandejo and Joseph. But I think originally it was Delpit and Joseph were going to be those two guys. Yeah, so I could see Sandejo coming here in like a mentor role to Delpit, trying to teach him how to play the back end and whatnot yet. And then the Achilles happens and he's thrust into the starting lineup. All right, so what's it going to look like Sunday? So they've reached this point. It's probably not going to be what it is next year, but it's going to be what they've got to try to get through this playoff situation with. How are they going to use these guys on Sunday? And I, Joe Woods did talk about the three safety thing early on, right? I, I, it seemed like maybe it was going to be like maybe Joseph and Sandejo and Delpit was like a slot corner slash safety in coverage a lot. That, that, that might be how it is. If those three would be out there together a decent amount. Yeah. Is there any chance, like, would this be a chance if Sandejo's playing and, and they have these issues, you know, at, at linebacker, I guess I don't, maybe the linebackers will all be back. I don't know exactly where they are at linebacker, but I, I almost wonder, like, could you end up in a situation where we have Joseph Zendejo and Harrison together on the field against this passing attack at times, if they're not as scared as of James Connor and the linebackers have kind of been in and out all year. I feel like we haven't seen it that much. I don't know, but I guess you're not going to change it up now, but that's if that's what he wants to do. Ideally, I almost wonder if we might see something in a little interesting on Sunday, but probably not. But what will we see Scott? What will we see? Well, let's talk about what the best safety pairing might be. And that might lead us to what we might see. Um, now I sound like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> but we've, we've gotten a bunch of different starting combinations this season, like I mentioned off the top. Uh, and that's obviously due to illness and um, or COVID issues and, and injuries. But uh, let's go over some of these pairings. We've seen Joseph and Sandejo eight times this season. That was a duo that uh, started the first four weeks. And then they didn't pair up again until week 12 when Harrison was out. We've seen Harrison and Sandejo four times, although there was a fifth start for this uh, duo, uh, but Harrison was injured real early against the Eagles. So maybe we call that four and a half. Uh, we've seen Sandejo and Redwine twice. And again, I'm counting one of these as the Eagles game because Redwine came on and played 47 snaps in place of Harrison. So he, he basically played the whole game. Joseph and Redwine had one game together. That was week 15 against the Giants. And then, as I mentioned earlier, week 17, we saw Harrison and Redwine very briefly. And then it became Harrison and Joseph, which was also a first. So which pairing has been the best? Kind of depends on how you want to measure it. Uh, in the eight games, Joseph and Sandejo played together. Sandejo's PFF grade was 50.1. These two guys combined for 13 missed tackles in those games. Joseph gave up six touchdowns, Harrison two. Joseph, 140.2 passer rating against Sandejo 96.7. So again, we, we watched these games. So we knew that that pairing wasn't going to come off sounding great stat wise. And the four games, Harrison and Sandejo uh, would play or have played together. Harrison, 80.6 PFF grade, just one missed tackle, 35.4 passer rating again. So that's really solid. Sandejo, 38.7 PFF grade. QBs completed 10 of 15 targets against him, two touchdowns, 139.7 passer rating. So you had, one pairing so far where both guys have been at a really low level and another pairing where one guy's played at a high level and the other guy has 
played even worse. In two games with Sandejo and Redwine, Sandejo, 54.6 PFF grade, Redwine's under 30. And they both had a passer rating of well over 100. Redwine was 143.8. Uh, one game with Joseph and Harrison, they were both in the 60s. And that was this week 17 game. Harrison 66.5, Joseph 60.6. Uh, Harrison, like we mentioned, played well below his average. Joseph, 95.8 passer rating, which I mentioned before is not great, but it's okay for him. The one game with Joseph and Redwine, like the one full game with them was against the Giants. Joseph had his best game of the season, a 78.2 grade, eight tackles, zero misses. These guys combined for 13 tackles and no misses. That's a big deal for Joseph and Redwine. Uh, Joseph, 45.8 passer rating against. He had two pass breakups, which if I remember correctly, were his first two pass breakups of the season. And again, that was week 15. Uh, Redwine, 95.8 passer rating against. He was only targeted once in that game. So if you just want to go by PFF grading and passer rating against, that's the best pairing you've had this season. Joseph and Redwine. But it was against the Giants. And again, it was one game. And again, again, it was against the Giants. So overall, the Browns have really struggled to get solid performances from both safeties in the same game. Joseph and Sandejo, which we've seen the most, they, they've never graded above 60 in the same game. But the Browns are 66-2 six in those games. Harrison is clearly one of the players you want on the field, and it comes down to which of the other three should be out there with them. Joseph had his best game against the Eagles and the Giants, but he only played 18 snaps against the Eagles. His other good game was against Washington. He had a pick. He was solid against the run. 45.8 passer rating against, but he was paired with Sandejo and Redwine in those games. And as we point out, Redwine's best game as a starter was against the Giants, and he was really bad when he was with Harrison. That leaves Sandejo, who's had three of his six worst PFF grades when he's paired with Harrison. But the Browns are 3-1 and one in those games. I'm tempted to say that Harrison and Joseph is a pairing worth seeing again, and we might be stuck with that anyways uh, if Sandejo can't come back. But Mason Rudolph completed five passes of more than 20 yards on Sunday, including three over 40, and the safeties need to own some of that. I'm sure Joe Woods would would prefer to have Harrison and Sandejo on the field if they're both able to go. But, you know, you're coming off of one of Joseph's more solid games. Maybe Woods considers keeping him out there for a wild card game based on that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's, it's hard. I, I think we're going to see Harrison and Sandejo if, if they're healthy, but I'm curious what you guys would rather see. Well, we've never, I mean, when Sandejo can play, he plays. So the idea of like Sandejo being healthy and not being one of the starting safeties, I don't think is even worth discussing. Like if he's healthy, he's going to play for all the reasons we talked about before. But I'll go back to what I said before. To me, if it's Sandejo and Harrison, if Sandejo can play, the way that Carl Joseph has played at moments here in the last third of the season, if you have a choice at times of whether it's like Mac Wilson or Carl Joseph on the field, I'd rather have two linebackers and Carl Joseph as a third safety at times against the run at times. And then maybe out in space on some stuff. I don't know. Again, would it open up a little more opportunity for some of these three safety looks? If Joseph can help you, I think in certain ways, Zendejo is going to be deep setting everything up and Harrison's the best playmaker. But I just, uh, that's, that's what I keep going back to that. I, I think Joseph probably can help this team. And then if, if Sandejo and Harrison are both ready to go, I don't know that the answer is then Carl Joseph is kind of irrelevant. You know, maybe it's, I don't know how many snaps it is. You said the one game he played 18 snaps. I don't know, Ellis. I'm, I'm trying to think of what the best solution here is. Um, and I know they need to stop the run, but when you think about Pittsburgh, it's, it's the passing game that scares you, not James Conner. So I just wonder, 
if the evolution of this safety position could lead us to some like one final evolution here in the last game, which maybe finally looks like what they wanted to do at the beginning and weren't able to. Yeah, I, that does make a lot of sense. If you do have Sandejo available, having three safeties on the field, especially when you're playing against the Steelers, who I guess the Browns are sometimes a different team, but they basically can't run the ball this year and they pass all the time. And if you, if Sandejo comes back and you maybe still don't have all your linebackers, that even makes more sense. You know, you don't want to stretch that position thin and have guys off the practice squad playing linebacker on third down or something. So yeah, in that respect, I think it does make a lot of sense. And that's one thing we haven't really seen much of this year, that three safety look for an extended period of time. And maybe that's, maybe that's what we get. Maybe that's the, you know, the card up the sleeve that Joe Woods is waiting to play in the playoffs. Right. So if that card is there, uh, I'll be blown away if we see it for two reasons, because now we're getting into a philosophy conversation about Joe Woods, which is a whole nother deep dive and probably something we can unpack in the off season, because what the Browns defense has been doing all year is really just a bunch of quarters coverage cover four. It sometimes it's a, a cover two and then a man coverage. Look, they're, they're a real, I don't want to call it a vanilla defense because that's, okay to play like that on defense you don't have your guys overthink play fast get to the football force turnovers that's the brand of this defense but that's the issue with the combination of players joe woods is putting out there at times he hasn't repped three safety looks or anything exotic to that nature because that's not what the browns are putting on the field instead it is your traditional two or three linebackers slot corner. If you're taking one out of the field, the, 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 cor- the slot corner is switching with the linebacker rather than adding another safety and doing some things at pre-snap to confuse the quarterback. None of that's really happening in Cleveland. And I don't want to have this come off as an indictment on Joe Woods. I don't think it is. I think it's because Joe Woods just doesn't trust enough of his athletes in the back end to run anything exotic, meaning cover four is the safest coverage to play when you don't want to get beat deep because your athletes allow you to get beat deep yet the Deontay Johnson 47 yard reception came against cover four. Robert Jackson's got like 12 yards off Johnson at the snap. Um, Carl Joseph is a safety on the same left side of the field. And I'm not kidding you guys. Deontay Johnson just ran straight. You know, that doesn't happen a lot, especially in the NFL. You are just taking the top off a cover four coverage with, no decoy underneath route with a, just a straight go route. Like it's, you know, Randy Moss, you know, back when I was watching Thanksgiving games in 98 is rookie. All right. I was five years old. Okay. I totally can remember it. <laughs> that, that, that's the problem with the defense right now is Carl, or excuse me, Joe Woods isn't trying anything new because he doesn't trust his parts. It'll be interesting to see how that may expand, giving him more athletes, but this Browns defense, for example, is going to play, a guy like Malcolm Smith, if he's coming back before they're going to put three safeties on the field, that that's just what we've seen from Joe Woods so far. And there's also, is there a cornerback conversation here at all that if we're expecting that Denzel Ward is back, but Kevin Johnson is probably not going to be back. Right. So here's the thing at the end, you have guys moving in and out. If Zendejo, Joseph and Harrison are all available and you still have any moving parts or absences at linebacker and corner, I just wonder if for all their faults, if they're still not three of the best 11 defensive players you have available on a snap, that three of your best 11 are safeties and that who, so Robert Jackson 
And Terrence Mitchell played outside corner last week. Who was the slot corner last week? I don't even know. MJ Stewart. MJ Stewart. Okay. He played, so there were five guys. There were six guys who played at least 60 snaps. Carl Joseph, MJ Stewart, Robert Jackson, Ronnie Harrison were in that group. Yep. So here's my question. So, so if Denzel's back and it's Denzel and Mitchell, but Kevin Johnson's not there and now it's MJ Stewart in the slot, could you, would it make sense to have times where you're playing Joseph and Zay Deho as your safeties and Ronnie Harrison is helping out in some slot coverage, playing some stuff rather than having MJ Stewart on the field for 60 snaps, right? Again, that, that maybe it's, whether it's three safeties or whether it's guys who are safeties getting a little corner responsibility or linebacker, whatever it is, you know what I mean? I just wonder that the in and out at safety has now left them in a situation where Joe Woods knows what's up with Carl Joseph, Andrews and Deho and Ronnie Harrison. He knows what they can do and he knows what they can't do. And I'm not so sure that he knows that for sure about some of the other guys who may end up having to be in the mix at corner or maybe I guess maybe the linebackers are going to be back to kind of normal, but I just wonder like Scott, your whole point of this is like, they're not that great, but they're a known, not that great quantity. And there might be some, I don't know if comfort's the right word, but familiarity with that. I I just don't know that MJ Stewart for 60 snaps is any kind of part of a winning for no offense. It's, It's part of a winning formula on no, Sunday but, if you can avoid it. Yeah, and, and Harrison really hasn't taken many snaps in the slot at all. 38 snaps uh, in the slot this, this season. He hasn't taken more than one since like week 10. So that would be something different. But again, if anybody knows he can do that consistently, it's going to be Joe Woods. Um, but yeah, it, is that better than MJ Stewart? I mean, MJ Stewart did not uh, bring it up his, uh, his grade here real quick. He, he did not play well. 59.7 in coverage. Um, three of four targets were caught for 40 yards, gave up a touchdown. He had the one pick, but, you know, that was kind of thrown right to him, underthrown. So, look, the, the Browns have had not have not had great performance in the slot overall this season. Uh, it's not like uh, Kevin Johnson has been huge in that spot either. But the fact is they're going to need a lot of people on the field in coverage this, this week because they're playing the Steelers. And, you know, does that mean three safeties is better than – than, than the extra corner in the slot. That's Joe Woods' job to figure out. I don't know if there's a really good answer that you can point to and say, yeah, that guy is a guy we need playing slot against Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah, so here, here's the issue with this is, again, it goes back to personnel and, quite frankly, probably the Browns not trusting Carl Joseph as a, a, a deep safety for the exact uh, scenario I just pointed out with the 47-yard reception that, I, look, I don't know if Sandejo breaks the pass up. All I know is that when Carl Joseph opens his hips and sprints and Sandejo does it, Sandejo gets there faster and is longer and just is a better chance of making a play regardless of what PFF says. Because here's where I'm going with this. Two years ago, or no, it would have been the last year's playoffs when the Vikings um, played the Saints. The Vikings did that. They played three safeties. They actually brought Sandejo down into the slot and had him guard Michael Thomas in a lot of man-to-man situations. And I know listeners are going to be like, wow, he Sandeo must've got roasted by Michael Thomas. He actually didn't, he actually held his own pretty well, but it was because we're talking about Mike Zimmer here. He allowed Sandeo to play close and be physical with Thomas. And Sandeo knew he always had help over the top with two pro bowl safeties and Anthony Harrison, Harrison Smith. That's a luxury Joe Woods doesn't have. So 
now I'm asking Joe Woods to become one of the best defensive coordinators in football and Mike Zimmer and do something exotic and creative and a curveball, which I'm not expecting. And second, it's probably unfair to expect that of him because he doesn't have the luxury of safeties like Mike Zimmer had to have Sandejo be his third safety and just roll him into a slot corner role. So again, it's about the combination of the parts, which is what Scott's detailed very well in this deep dive and the Browns just don't have it in a way that they can get creative. So, so Ellis, we could wrap up with this, the idea of, of a coach making a decision like this, and we're just talking a lot of nonsense here. Well, I don't, what do I know? But he has some parts that don't exactly fit together perfectly. And he's playing a good passing offense. That's dangerous. So if you're a coach at this point in the season, do you, if you throw fastball slider, do you just have to throw fastball slider and hope that you can keep them in the park? Or do you come out and throw curveballs knowing that you might walk the bases loaded, but you really do not want to throw them a fastball in a hitter's count because your fastball late in the season is only topping out at like 92. So I, like, I just, if it's a, it's a way a coach thinks we're saying like, well, they haven't done this all year. What do they get? Like, would you take a risk? Like, Hey, roll the dice. It's kind of, we'll do our best. And at the very Maybe if, if, if we throw ourselves off, maybe we'll throw Ben off a little bit too because we'll be giving him something he hasn't seen from us before. Or do you just go with do our best with what we have, hold on for dear life, and hope the offense can outscore him, but we're not going to do something absolutely new in week 18? Right, Doug, it's a great question. And what it comes down to for me is matchups. This is playoff football. We have to remember who the Browns are playing. I'm all for risks when they're necessary. But – all of a sudden, we're treating the Steelers and Big Ben like they're the Kansas City Chiefs or the Buffalo Bills. we got to remember, this team just lost to the Cincinnati Bengals, and that offense looked atrocious. we got to remember that for a few moments there in Pittsburgh, even when this team was a completely different team back in October, the, the Steelers had some three and outs. This is not a high-octane offense that is going to score a touchdown on, you know, 10 of their 12 possessions. This is still a, a, a defense that, or excuse me, an offense that outside of that Colts second half couldn't stretch the field for the entire second half of their season. So I think we got to just remember that the Browns can play this offense in a more conservative way, try their luck with Miles Garrett getting after Big Ben or pass uh, breakups, like you have in the defensive line you know you're not going to get to Big Ben because he releases it early, get up and deflect the football. There are ways to get this team off the field without getting desperate. And I think putting guys in positions that they're not in yet or repped enough is more desperate than risk-taking. And this offense just isn't the juggernaut that we've now built it up to be because of, again, a second half from Big Ben and Mason Rudolph throwing 50-50 jump balls up to Chase Claypool. They're just not – they don't deserve that much respect, even though they've had some decent weeks now, decent halves. All right, Scott. That so Ellis sense. says Ellis says save three safeties for Mahomes. That makes sense. Like save the wrinkle for Patrick. There Just give go. Big Ben the usual stuff. Make him prove it is what I'm saying. Make yeah. them prove it. No, I don't I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Scott, what's your so what's your final watching Brown safety play or, and analyzing Brown safety play after a full regular season of this? Do you have a little uh you a little shaken right now? Or are you okay? I think Maybe Browns fans can take comfort in the fact that Ben Roethlisberger is only completing 33%, 32% of his deep passes. So we saw Mason Rudolph complete. It was like almost 45%. I think it was, he was like four of nine on deep passes. Ben Roethlisberger hasn't done that all over this season. Although he was three of three against the Browns in week six with a touchdown. But 
overall, Ben Roethlisberger has not, not been doing that on a consistent basis this season. So there's that. <laughs> and the fact that you're 11 and five with, with the rotation that you have had at safety. I mean, everything bad that has happened with his defense this season, and we've talked about almost every aspect of it, the Browns are 11 and five. Which, which I would say is, is exactly the plan, which is like, yes, as we, we've said from the get-go, you can't be an A-plus in every area of the team. So the areas where you're not an A-plus have it in areas that you think won't absolutely kill your season. And I think that's what they've done pretty darn effectively here. And then you absolutely know what Andrew Barry is going to target in the offseason to try to improve this roster. So makes a lot of sense. But but it is. I mean, but now it's one of those things. It, it, here we are. It is Big Ben is like the warm up for what would be coming next if a super you know a Super Bowl run for the Browns would go through Ben Roethlisberger, Patrick Mahomes, and Josh Allen. It's like okay, this is step one, but. That's where we are. But isn't it great to be there? Isn't it great to be there? Rather, you'd rather have this than to be talking about your all pro safety and be six and 10 because the rest of your team fell apart. All right. Thanks to Scott for that deep dive on the safeties. We'll come back and talk some bootlegs with Ellis Williams next on Gotta Watch the Tape. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, Scott Patsko, Ellis Williams, Doug Maurice. Hey, we tried something different this year. There's a podcast in the Orange and Brown Talk feed where Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Lobby, and I, after every Browns game, the day after every Browns game, did like a little eight-minute talk about where we thought the team was in the moment. And now we've put it all together, and you can relive this Browns season, and it's moment by moment after each game, and you can sort of hear the evolution from us of – Okay, they just lost to the Ravens in week one. What does it mean? You know, and take everybody through the entire season. It's a little bit of a long listen. It might intimidate you to see that two and a half hours in the Orange and Brown Talk feed, but it's like a quick listen because you it's it's seven it's sixteen bite-sized things on each game. So it's not like a narrative podcast where you have to like follow the story or anything. So you can consume it in little chunks and pieces, relive the season. I think we were trying to reflect how fans were thinking in the moment. So I think it's a, it's a nice, a nice way to relive this playoff season for the Browns. So go ahead and listen to that in the orange and Brown talk feed, of course, breaking news when it happens, they had an emergency podcast on Tuesday with the news about Kevin Stefanski, not coaching. So again, just, we are filling up your podcast feed here in the orange and Brown talk feed, but now part two on got to watch the tape. It's bootlegging with Baker and our friend Ellis Williams dive in Ellis. Yeah, and everything Doug just said there about listening to the season in review, I think is a great setup for what we're about to do here because it's the NFL. We get new information each week. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. And the way things change week to week can help you project what may happen next. And that's where we're at right now with this Browns offense, Baker Mayfield bootlegging, and just the play-action game in general with the Browns. So when we talk about the Browns offense – Heck, when anyone talks about the Browns offense, it only takes a few words before the phrase play action pass is uttered. I just did it at the top of this dive. If I'm not going to waste our listeners time, time, but if I were to ask Doug or Scott for the identity of the Browns offense, play action would be mentioned in the first 10 words or less. I'm confident of that. However, I'm here to tell you that the Browns actually aren't a play action centric team, at least against the Steelers. On Sunday, Baker Mayfield had five play-action passes on a total of 30 dropbacks. That's half of his average. In 16 games, Mayfield used play-action 162 times. That's 12th most for an average of about 11 play-action shots per game. 
Mayfield's passer rating with play action is 121.9. That's seventh best in the league. His yards per attempt is a very healthy 9.5. He's thrown 12 touchdowns and only one interception with play action. Without it, he's had 14 touchdowns and center seven interceptions. Now, I'm confident all seven of those picks came before the bye, and you know we've talked about how much Baker's clean up those turnovers. So that's not the issue. It's not that Baker Mayfield turns it over when he doesn't have play action. That's not the case at all. But what does change is his yards per attempt go down to 6.4, and his passer rating drops to 84.8. Those are you know troubling lower numbers. So back to Sunday. Baker's five play action passes on Sunday resulted in one of two passing for two yards and a touchdown. On regular dropbacks, Baker was 16 of 25, 64% completion, a 7.8 yards per attempt, so, you know, fair, and a 87.8 passer rating. Important to point out that on those five dropbacks of play action, Baker was sacked twice. So even when they were are trying to make it happen, it, it was not working. So the goal of my research was to figure out where the bootlegs went. But as you can tell, bootlegs, of course, are tied to the play action. You cannot have one without the other. And I suppose you could, but that's it's not good play design. <laughs> um, where'd the bootlegs go? They were non-existent because, as I just laid out, the Browns play action passing versus the Steelers just doesn't exist. Heading into week 17, the Browns offense versus the Steelers defense was your classic strength-on-strength matchup. Baker Mayfield had the second-best QBR using play action, and the third most yards per dropback. In those same categories, the Steelers' defense allows the league's worst QBR and the lowest yards per attempt against play action. So you can see where I'm going with this. Rather than take the Steelers head-on, Kevin Stefanski zigs when he expects a defense to have him zag, and he altered his game plan to a more traditional dropback game, trusted Baker to throw specifically by targeting the middle of the field. That's where... The Steelers have lost some guys and just been um, the one spot you could get them in general this year, but especially when they lost Devin Bush, the middle of the field became more available. It's no coincidence that Jarvis Landry's six targets and Austin Hoover's five targets led the team. They're the tight end and the slot receiver. That's where they operate, the middle of the field. Between the numbers, Baker was 9 of 12 for 104 yards, and by far his most targeted area was that middle of the field. So to be clear, this was a specific game plan decision by Kevin Stefanski because Baker had 15 play action dropbacks versus the Giants on Sunday night football just a few weeks ago. And we all remember how sharp the Browns offense looked that night. So before I get into why the bootlegs aren't working, I just want to ask you guys, let's go back to Sunday. And I know we talked a little bit about it on the post game pop, but now that we've had time to rewatch the tape and let it breathe a little bit, uh, what did you make of Kevin Stefanski's game plan versus the Steelers? Because based on what I just laid out, it's not consistent with how the Browns have attacked other teams on the schedule thus far. I'm just trying to imagine a bootleg without play action where like the quarterback takes the snap in the shotgun, stands there for a second and then just turns his back and runs to the side. Everybody be like, well, you're like, that is bad play design. It's like, it just can't have one without the other. Scott, what did you think? what did you think of that game plan? Yeah, as Ellis was talking there, I'm bringing up the next gen stats uh, spread chart of uh, of Baker, and yeah, you do see a lot of the dots there uh, in the middle. I think, you know, it makes sense if you're gonna. I mean, the Steelers are the best defense in the league, so you have to do something different. Although I should point out, they uh, 
they, I think the previous low for play action was the week before against the Jets. Right. So, like, the Jets and the Steelers, I don't know. This is defenses. I know there are different circumstances against the Jets, but still. Um, it was kind of funny that they were kind of in the same boat. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I think – I mean, if you're playing the Steelers, obviously the pass rush is, is at the top of their – top of their uh, success. And then, you know, the corners have not, the, the corners have been vulnerable. So how do you get to those corners? How do you get to the point where you can pass and, and get the ball out quick and, and, you know, shorter passes, middle of the field makes a lot of sense. I, you know, it helped that the Steelers were missing a couple of their key pass rushers this past week. Um, I'm curious to see how all this works when you get TJ Watt and, and Cam Hayward and those guys back on the field. And, and when you don't have Joel Petonio, on the field, but it worked uh, against the Steelers in week 17. Is that it, Ellis? So, so as we figure out like why, why maybe that wasn't happening, is it because they're the idea of, well, the, you don't want slower developing plays with the Steelers pass rush. And that if you think the play action is not slowing them down, it's just another half second of holding the ball for them to get to you. And so let's get it out of Baker's hands and not go that route. Why, why, why has it tended this way? against the Steelers. Yeah. So two things on that. And now this is the part where we need to differentiate between play action bootlegs and just simple play action, staying in the pocket, the, the skinny on the play action, staying in the pocket, unfortunately to me, I think comes down to a Baker Mayfield issue based on his height. You're not keeping Baker Mayfield in the pocket for play action when in close in the red zone, when he knows exactly where his windows are, that's fine. And he's been successful all year doing so Just see the Austin Hooper touchdown versus the Steelers for that exact moment. He knows when he knows where his guy is supposed to be, the play action is a huge beneficiary of Baker Mayfield, but between the twenties, when you ask him to stay in the pocket on bootlegs, Doug, to your point, not only are the routes usually taking longer to develop, the Browns love using just two man routes, you know, a tight end and a deep receiver, uh, on the uh, bootleg that the one, the lone bootleg, the Browns tried, it was a left bootleg. Um, Alex Highsmith just came off the left edge and was right in Baker's face. As soon as he started his boot and the fake was great. I mean, Baker's doing such a good job this year of hiding the football, staying relaxed as he's dropping back and then taking off for the boot. And if you go back and watch that tape, as soon as he boots, Alex Highsmith is right in his face because of the high upfield angle he took and outside and then Baker tried to get back up and just lost his splitting. So that is the crux of what makes the Steelers defense so good against play action is that, and specifically against play action versus the Browns is because they're not worried about Baker's play action in the pocket between the twenties. And then outside the pocket, the Steelers defense, when you watch them on tape guys is all coaching and discipline. Again, I mentioned Highsmith who is Bud Dupree's replacement. And we talked uh, back in October when they played the Steelers about how disciplined those edge rushers were for the bootleg. They are not worried about pursuing the football or screaming down the line to eliminate cutbacks at all. They're only worried about Baker Mayfield. So even on, and I thought this was really important too. Um, there was a run fake in the third quarter where Baker does the same motion. And even though he didn't keep the ball, one of the Steelers outside linebackers, the, the names are getting me 40 something, 46 or something. He still popped Baker when Baker went to go boot, go right, even though Baker didn't have the ball. And Baker 
surprise him and actually put the Steelers guy on his back, which is just something Baker does with that kind of stocky lower build that he has. It was kind of funny to see him put the Steeler on the ground. But the point is that Mike Tomlin has clearly conditioned these edge defenders to not worry about backside pursuit whatsoever. Instead, make the Browns play left-handed, take away that bootleg at all costs. So what's the counter to this? There are two. Kevin Stefanski already tried one of them. Throw it from the gun, spread the Steelers out, get your matchups inside, and throw the ball with Baker Mayfield. And the other, and it's, again, something I've been saying on this podcast now for five weeks, is to simply run the ball more. Run at those wide ends. Again, we talked about it after the game in October. Bud Dupree was so wide that there were lanes that you could exploit right there off left tackle that the Browns left some yards on the field. And it's, I guess, not surprising that when these two teams meet now for the third time, we're still talking about the same types of issues from October. And not that they're necessarily glaring issues, because, of course, the Browns won that game in Week 17 and scored enough to to do it. But at times the offense looked um, anxious, and it it felt like there were some of those yards were hard to get. And, of course, they should be against the Steelers, but my point is – there is opportunity to make life a lot easier versus the Steelers defense by running Nick Chubb, because this is my last point. And you guys correct me live here. If my math is wrong, because this doesn't even sound possible, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's accurate. And I've said this before at the 3:42 mark of the fourth quarter, the Browns had nine possessions and 31 minutes of time of possession. Nick Chubb had uh, 12 carries for hundred yards that's 1.5 carries per drive and 3.2, 3.25 yards per minute. I mean, the efficiency of Nick Chubb there is just mind-blowing. For him not to get more chances in this next go-around, to me, at that point, you're becoming inefficient despite the efficiencies of throwing the football that EPA and analytics so heavily lean on, which clearly this staff does. That Alex Highsmith guy, I remember talking to him at the Combine. He's such a nice guy. One of those things, again, it's like, what a great third-round pick by the Steelers. He's the Charlotte guy who went to Charlotte, was a walk-on, and, like, worships Larry Ogunjobi because Larry Ogunjobi, like, invented football at Charlotte. Now this Alex Highsmith guy is going to terrorize the Browns for the next 10 years as a great draft. And he can play. He can really play. When I was first – when we were doing the preview for this game in Week 17, I said, hey, you can kind of get after after Alex Highsmith. And – he showed some really nice stuff on tape. He had a, a, a spin move on Jedrick Wills and went after Baker and got the sack. I mean, he's, he's got it. I don't know what it is about the Steelers finding outside linebackers that can rush the passer and wide receivers, but holy smokes, they do it better than anyone. Scott, I do feel like there, uh, at times this year, we've sort of talked about the idea that it feels like sometimes against the Steelers and the Ravens, the Browns offense doesn't quite exactly do what they seem to do against everybody else. That because they are talented, disciplined defenses, they come out and they don't follow what we believe is now the Stefanski plan, right? Is that, is that part of this? As, as again, Ellis, we're, we're all trying to figure out, so like, all right, so this is what they did against the Steelers. Why is that? What do you think, Scott? Yeah, that is weird. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, they almost beat the Ravens the second time around and they did beat the Steelers. I know they were depleted, but they still won that game. And they just, right. I think, generally had better performances overall in those two games. So, that, you know, I think that's something that I don't know if we're ever going to pin Kevin Stefanski down on it. Maybe, I don't know. 
I mean, you don't want to be flippant with with your game plan and and say, all right, well, this first game doesn't matter. We're just all here to learn stuff. You know, I, I'm sure that's not it, but I'm sure, you know, learning from those first experiences is a big part of it. And I think in both those games, the most noticeable thing and big part of Ellis's dive here is the fact that they did not come out and do the play action and the boots and all the things that we kind of expected them to do in the first time, two times they played those teams. Um, you know, but then, you know, now we're finding out there's a little bit more to it. So I don't know. I, I think the fact that you've gotten to this point in the season and you have played better the second time, and now you're getting a third shot at the Steelers. Maybe it's all part of this big plan. Maybe it's like, this was, this was it from the start that at some point you're going to have to play these guys in a big, meaningful game at the end of the season. Let's make sure we're ready for that. I mean, I will say, I don't think anybody on this podcast or anywhere else in Brown's land thinks that like Kevin Stefanski doesn't have a plan that it's like the reason that he does something is because he's like, Oh, I don't know what to do, man. I guess we'll try this. It's like, well, he knows what he's doing. It's just interesting to try to figure out like, well, why does he think that that leads him to do that? Because if there's anything that defines the Kevin Stefanski era so far, it seems like is that is having a plan and that nothing is by the seat of the pants and that everything is about, cohesion and and fitting things together so ellis where is this taking us where is this taking us this build up to what we're leading into on sunday and, and everything that we've seen and not seen from a kevin stefanski offense so far right it really brings us to how we started this podcast doug with you saying projecting a game that has so many unknown variables is extremely difficult and that's really where we're at now with alex and pelt calling plays um mary Kay kevin's doing a wonderful job following the news, breaking it, and tracking the fact that Kevin Stefanski cannot be involved on game day operations on Sunday. He'll have very little – he'll have literally nothing to do with getting the plays in, and he'll have very little to do in terms of script. There's a fair likelihood that Kevin Stefanski scripts the first 15, 20 plays of some sort and you know hands them to Van Pelt on a, on a Friday or whatever, and we call it good – but after that, once you get into the, you know, halfway through the second quarter, that middle, that middle eight that we love talking about, the end of the fourth, that's going to be Alex Van Pelt's game plan. And that's the, why this is so unpredictable. So to put a bow on Kevin Stefanski right now, just because he will not be involved on Sunday, I want to say this about the year he's had. I think the next step for Kevin, and I, it makes me really uncomfortable to say something about guys who are much smarter than I overthinking something. But I think that that's what's been going on with Kevin Stefanski a little bit lately is that there is a bit of an overthought process going into how he can combat a defense when sometimes your strength, even though it's against the opponent's strength, your strength may just be better. So give it a shot give and give it a real chance rather than just folding the, the, you know, defeat of your strength and attacking a weakness when it's not your strength either. You know, we're talking about it. It's an efficiency thing here now. And I think that it'll be interesting to see as the Stefanski era unfolds in year two and year three in Cleveland, if this is just how he's going to be always at taking the weakest and exploiting the weakest part of a defense, or if he's like, you know what, this is still our strength, regardless if they think they can stop it, let's line up and play. So I'm going to put a bow on Kevin Stefanski for that because now this is coming down to how Alex Van Pelt's going to call the game. And for me, this is going to, this comes down to running wide zone. I think beating the Steelers comes back to doing what the Browns look like early in the year 
and punishing them on the outside and making them stay disciplined. Not that you're going to tailor bootlegs into it because I don't think there's any getting the bootleg game working against the Steelers defense. They're too disciplined, but you can exploit that discipline by running right at those ends who want the play fake to happen. You can run, you can run zone left zone, right. And then you can even mix in some counters to confuse the ends even more. So the reason I say that is this, the Browns ran zone runs 10 times versus Pittsburgh which isn't a complete swap of their identity. In fact, Cleveland calls more power runs. That's when you see either Wyatt Teller pull and lead or Joel Batonio pull and lead. That's power. Uh, every NFL team runs it. I'd say the Browns are running it the best in the league right now. So it makes sense that they're going to run power more than zone. I get that. And I'm not telling them to go away from power. I just want to see more outside zone for this reason. They ran outside zone with Nick Chubb six times. Kareem Hunt got the other four. On those carries for Nick Chubb, excuse me, six times total, four for Nick Chubb. On those carries for Nick Chubb, four carries, 60 yards, and a score. That's 15 yards per pop. Now, of course, that average is going to go down the more you give Nick Chubb outside zone runs. But outside zone is one of Nick's best running plays because then it allows the cutback lane to be there and be available for him to exploit. He didn't even take the cutback on, on those, those big runs. He had a, you know, the 47 yard run, he had an 11 yard run because it didn't get into the groove of it. And we already talked about the way Kevin Spansky was rotating hunt and Chubb and so on. It's going to be really interesting to see if that rotation slows down just in general, or if Alex Van Pelt just plays Nick Chubb more, because I think this should be a 18, 20 carry game for him with, you know, 11 or 12 of those being outside zone because the efficiency was there Sunday. They just went away from it. It feels like that. That's like their victory formation to me. Like when you have that, when Nick Chubb is running wide zone and he's chopping his feet for that cutback and you get the, the, the end zone view from the other side and he's, he disappears behind the wall of linemen and then all the linemen push to the side and he's there in the cutback lane. And it's like the, the music swells and it's like the playoff music. And it does feel like sometimes it's like, Oh, you didn't, we didn't really get to that as much in some games. Um, Scott, do you like, is that, do you think Scott, like, is that, is that it? Are we, are we going to see that Sunday? Is that what this has led to? That's what we'll see. Oh, I, my thing just cut out here. So what was the question? Oh. And then I'll take it up from there. Is, yeah, is this, this, this dream scenario of late game, Nick Chubb wide zone, getting ready to hit the cutback lane. Will that happen on Sunday? Well, I certainly hope so because he should be fresh and ready to go after playing basically half a game uh, last week. You know, they really did a good job of rotating them. So, you know, if we're going to see what else are you saving Nick Chubb for, you know, if this is the game where he gets uh, 25, 30 carries, that would, that would make sense to me. I know it goes against what this offense has been this season, but uh, you know, if that's the way that makes a lot of, that's the way that, you need to, to play to beat the Steelers defense. Well, then you give it to Chubb 25, 30 times. I don't know. So, so I, let me ask this in, in, in this dream scenario is Joel Batonio at left guard in the dream. Nobody has a dream. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> so, so not only is it not Joel Batonio, it's not Chris Hubbard. It's not Nick Harris. They're really down to like their fourth option at left guard. Is it Kendall lamb? Who do we think? Is it Michael Dunn? Who do we think it's going to be? And then how, much of an effect obviously there's an effect but is it going to be most in the run game in this kind of stuff or is it going to be more in 
protecting Baker Mayfield, where will we see the greatest absence of Joel Petonio? You're going to see it probably everywhere. I mean, it, look, Kendall Lamb's played one snap at guard. I'm not saying he can't do it, but uh, that's not something he's traditionally done. Michael Dunn has one career snap in the NFL, and the other three dudes they got on the roster are practice squad recent signees who've never played a snap. So, uh, I mean, if you're talking pass protection and just experience, maybe you put Kendall Lamb there and hope for the best, and that's got to be better than, than Michael Dunn's best. It's going to affect them all around. I, I, if you put Kendall Lamb there, I don't believe it's going to be as bad as, as maybe Nick Harris's first couple games of experience were, but it's not good, especially when you consider that the Steelers interior linemen, I think if I remember, they're like second and fourth or second and third in pressures among interior linemen in the league this year. So that's, that's quite a task. Ellis, how, is there a particular style of run blocking that, that is easier for a fourth string guard to do in a situation like this? Do you want him pulling in power? Do you not want him pulling? What's, what's, the, what's the best way to kind of cover this up? Yeah, I'm pretty confident this is what the Browns are going to do Sunday. They're going to run when it's wide zone. They're going to run right. And when they're running power, they're going to run power left and pull teller. They're not going to ask a fourth string guard to pull. And this is where the the teaching, the coaching of Bill Callahan is so important because wide zone would be in running wide zone away from that replacement guard would be the easiest thing for him to use and implement because wide zone you're doing the same thing in a repetitive nature and you're the guys next to you can help cover for any inefficiency you might have across that line and with the play going away from you the chances of you know your gap getting exploited is pretty rare that i mean you'd have to be you really have to get blown up for that to happen so i wouldn't expect it so again run wide zone away run power toward but you have your pulling guard again helping to clean up that soft spot and that's really going to be the Browns best to run plays because they cannot get all that creative now without Joel Petonio. And secondly, when it comes to the pass game, that's going to be the biggest issue. We saw what happened to Nick Harris once there was tape on him and how you can just get crushed in the middle and someone can be in Baker's face right away. That's the quickest way to end a play. When Baker Mayfield says hut, he's expecting no pressure. And then in 1.9 seconds, there's a guy in his face. That's a wasted play. You got to be real careful here, which really gets me to my point that on Sunday, the Browns just have an opportunity to calm this offense down, run Nick Chubb, take the ball out of Baker's hands, win a close game. The Steelers offense, as we said in Scott's deep dive, this isn't Buffalo. This isn't Kansas City. They're not going to score you know, 35 or 40 points. It's going to be a low 20, mid 20 type of game. And that's what I hope the Browns come into with this game with an offensive mindset that this isn't a sprint and the aggressor doesn't always win for that reason. We just talked about with the replacement guard dropping Baker back 30 times and allowing Cam Hayward and to it and to get interior pressure like that is a losing strategy. And it's probably what the Steelers want. I've been saying it for five weeks. And when you ask Scott, is this what's going to happen? I was hoping he'd say something like, well, Ellis has been saying it for four weeks now and it hasn't. Uh, Chances are it ain't happening this time, but for the fifth week in a row, Cleveland run the football, be comfortable in a close game. It's going to be ugly, but your best player on offense is Nick Chubb. Let him prove that. All right. That's a dive on bootlegging with Baker play action in with Nick. 
Um, we're doing some Star Wars stuff this week. We created a little Star Wars world with a Stefan DeLorean. I'll tell you, it was really quite an idea until the Stefan DeLorean got COVID. I don't know what George Lucas would do. I don't think COVID-19 exists in the Star Wars no. universe. And if it does, I'm pretty sure the Stefan DeLorean's armor would protect against it. So... Uh, Beskar metal apparently does not keep out the coronavirus. That's, that's what we've learned this year. You know? Yeah, I, I'm shocked by that. And Scott, even to keep the Star Wars theme going, I believe in your winners and losers this week, you had a nice title for episode three of this matchup. What, what was it? Return of the, the Starters or something the like starters that? The Starters Strike Back. Yes. Starters <laughs> Strike Back. That was so good. Brown Steelers, so good. episode three. Oh, man. So uh, so we're doing we, we created some Star Wars characters. We had QB six is Baker. He's kind of like the, the guy that's like is taking all the information that's programmed by Kevin Stefanski uh, on Wednesday. I think we rolled out Jarvisi and the wise who's sort of like this ancient uh, guy with these mystical powers that he can spread throughout his group. Uh, so we have a couple more coming. Just trying to have a little fun. We, we have one that Scott and the texters came up with that sort of launched the whole idea with this. It is the nickname for Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And Scott, just so just so I have it right, how did it come to be? And then and make sure you reveal again what it is. I, uh, I asked our, uh, our subscribers to uh, give me some nickname options for Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt as a running back duo, you know, because all things in the NFL have some sort of nickname. Uh, very popular with defenses, defensive lines. So uh, this was one that uh, was thrown out by uh, one of the, the texters and it just stuck. Um, do, do you want me to say it or? Go ahead. Chubba the Hunt. <laughs> it's seriously like all this whole Star Wars thing was partially launched by the subscriber who came up with Chubba the Hunt. So Chubba the Hunt is one of the characters too. And yeah, we have a drawing that is like a two-headed Jabba the Hunt of Kareem Hunt and Nick <laughs> Chubb. That sounds uh, hideous, but <laughs> yeah, it's wonderfully hideous. So that's coming too. So make sure you're catching all our Star Wars stuff. Again, it was quite a fun idea. And and then everybody got COVID. <laughs> it's like, oh, the real world infringed upon this. But listen, the Browns still have a chance. They certainly still have a chance because you build a culture, you build an identity. And then I think that's almost the mark of a great coach in a lot of ways is that you have established so many things that you reach the point where you can even pull yourself out of it and what you have brought to the organization remains. And this, unfortunately, is going to be a great test of that because, again, he's around on Zoom and that kind of thing, but they're going to head out on the field Sunday without Kevin Stefanski, who's been so crucial to this. But the, the, there's no greater tribute to Kevin Stefanski than to do what he would want you to do, even though he's not there. Everything he planned, everything he established – follow that lead and go take care of business. So we'll be back end of the week. I think it's going to come on Saturday for the second. Got to watch the tape this week because the game's not till Sunday night. You'll have the full weekend to listen to it. And Scott and Ellis will once again, dive in a little more on the matchups for this game. So for now, thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Ellis and Scott for all their hard, interesting work on this. I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on gotta watch the tape.